to steal the introduction of a fantastic YouTuber. Hi, hey, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. This week I have a really lovely and empowering and warm chat with Joey and Eliane, who are both part of the Right Care First Time Where You Live's National Strategy Group. It's a new group. It's an exciting group and it's a group that sits across the rest of the program to help inform and bring the the insights that we've learned from each program site to the next one so that goals can be reached, innovation can be implemented and there can be better service access and all-round coordination for young people who are seeking help from service providers. Our chat, like I said, it was really empowering. It was wonderful to actually sit with both these wonderful people and learn from them through what they've learned and to see that they're, they've grown in their understanding of the sector, but they also call for their understanding not to be taken for granted, which I think is something that's really important. And Joey actually says it perfectly that you can't make change without empathy and sort of reiterating the fact that while she may now have empathy for why it is so hard to structurally change things, she doesn't want that to be used as an excuse to buy more time or to mitigate why a change hasn't happened. So it was a wonderful chat and I really hope you enjoy. Well, thank you, Joey and Eliane, for joining me today. It's really exciting to have you back, Joey. You are such a powerhouse. And then to have you as well, Eliane, on the channel as a new guest, but also a really wicked informant, which I sort of got to know a bit about you behind the scenes, but then also when we were at that workshop a few weeks back. It was really cool to see sort of the voice you use and and what you bring to the table. So thank you both for joining. Thank you for inviting us. Mm, No, absolutely. Joey, I'll throw to you to introduce yourself and a bit about what you do, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I'm Joey. I've been on on the the pod a few times now. (laughs) I'm a youth mental health advocate and I also work with the University of Sydney Brain and Mind Centre as a digital navigator, as well as with the ACT government running a youth reference group for the Child and Youth Mental Health Sector Alliance. Um, So that's a bit about me. And me and Elliot are now like very new members of the National reference group for the um, right care first time where you live. It's a, it's a bit of a difficult name. <laughs> it is, but it's also like so exciting. But it, it's, it, everyone is so frustrated by the name because it's like I think we're so used to just things being really simple or that their acronym stands for something super, super simple and it's it's quite short. But then, you know, this is right care first time where you live and very indicative of what the program's about and what what the program aims to change. But at the same time, it's one of those things where there's not a shortened version. Although I think they go, I think internally we go through like the right care program. So if you want to refer to it as that, that's totally cool. Eliane, would you like to introduce yourself a little? Yeah. um, Well, this is my first time on the podcast. I'm Eliane. I use he, him pronouns. I'm, I guess, not as prolific 
as a mental health advocate as Joey is, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely excited to be working in this space. I am doing a Bachelor of Psychology at the ANU, so it's sort of related to my study. I have uh, quite a few years of lived experience as well as just doing community work inside of my schools related to mental health. So it's quite exciting for me now in my sort of like university years to be able to actually be doing stuff. I'm part of Joey's reference group for the Youth Coalition reference group, as well as the uh, Right Time Care reference group as well. Yeah, I'm just really excited about all things mental health, particularly those things around trauma, people of colour, as well as queer individuals and advocating for them. Yeah. Amazing. And and you may say that you're not as, to quote you, a prolific advocate as Joey is, but equally, and, and I'm sure Joey shares this, your voice is so important and you cover, you know, a, a different matrix, I guess, and speak for different voices that Joey might not be able to in some areas or someone else may not be able to. I definitely can't speak to some of the the voices that you bring and experiences you bring. So it's wonderful to have you as well as Joey on this national reference group of BHP's project, Right Care First Time, Where You Live. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, what does this reference group mean for both of you and what sort of I guess, expectations and, and understanding do you have in your position and, and the reach of it? Yeah, I guess for this reference group, it's a really exciting opportunity to be being able to actually see how the project's going. We were in the ACT one, which I think was the first one to run. And it was exciting to actually be able to, just in the ACT area, talk to health providers and actually get the other side of the experience. And it's really easy as young people to feel alone and feel like the system doesn't actually care about you. But you know, seeing that there were health providers there who were actually actively aware of the situation and the difficulty of young people reaching out to the system and wanting to do better. So being able to be in this reference group and give advice to how the other sites should be run, as well as, you know, you sit in, you know, Christine and you inviting us to do these bunch of workshops and other opportunities, it really feels great to be able to have of my voice heard and it feels as if this is just one role in a new wave of things for young people to actually be able to speak and advocate for ourselves in a way that we haven't been able to previously. So I guess this role is sort of, to me, a sign that, you know, despite everything going on in the world, that there are actually people that care and actually people that want to make genuine change, even if sometimes the rest of the world doesn't seem to want that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's one of the really important things. Well, I know that's one of the really important things of this program is to make sure that, like you said, young people are able to, to quote you exactly, I wrote that down, young people are able to speak and advocate for themselves like they haven't before. And I am immensely proud that I work for a team and that I'm able to do these conversations on behalf of a team that facilitate that like you said with with Canberra and then also are able to sort of make those links and those connections and and foster those relationships between youth advocates and the service providers that are seeking to help and support them at all stages of their mental wellness. Joey what does this national reference group position mean for you? 
I definitely resonate with everything Ellie was saying, particularly around the having the opportunity to have our voices heard, but even more so than now, just the ACT, but now being on this national group, we get to see where what other young people are doing in their states and how this project is unfolding around the country, um, the different uh, mental health system like climates, I guess, of where they're and what that looks like and getting to learn from all of that is really exciting and that means a lot to me, being able to take our voices outside of the ACT and look at it at a national lens and help inform the future sites so that they can get the best out of what they're doing as well. That's a really, really exciting opportunity and I'm super grateful to get to be a part of that. So, yeah. So can you break down for our listeners essentially what a national reference group is. I know you've kind of touched on it. I think Ellie and you touched on it in sort of taking the learnings from each site and, and sort of suggesting or or providing that input into, you know, whichever current program site is sort of undertaking so that the learnings from each one can sort of better colour the picture and the landscape. What else does it mean, I guess, in terms of a role and contribution to the overall program? Well, I guess we are still, from what I can tell, we're still in that sort of early stages. Basically, what a lot of the work we were doing is listening to what's going on with the other sites, as well as hearing what sort of issues and what sort of ideas that the young people there are giving out and sort of giving our feedback of using our experience with the ACT workshop and either advocating for it or suggesting a way this can be implemented for the young people there. For example, I think one of the good examples were that in one of the sites, I can't remember which one, but the young people were really wanting to, you know, be able to run part of the workshop. And that's something that we didn't really get to do much in the ACT, but Joey and I both felt like would really actually be quite helpful and would allow the young people in that area to really advocate for things that were relevant to them. So I guess in the role specifically, it's doing our best to make sure that the young people in these new sites can, you know, get a better outcome from what we learned from our workshop, as well as just giving our voices. We've been asked a couple of times just to join in on workshops that might not necessarily be related to the Right Care program, but sort of as youth voices that are readily available and happy to chat with. We're sort of there to, I guess, give insights into things that are happening for young people at the time. That's sort of how I see it. Joe, you're welcome to add anything if I've missed anything really big. But yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely how I see it as well. And I think because ACT was that first site and we were the first two members to kind of be on this national reference group and we'll get more and more members after each site happens. But I think because we're such in that early stage, we do get a little bit of a, a helping hand on what the reference group might look like and kind of get to be there from the beginning. So I think that's might be where our roles are a little bit more unique in that sense, but it's all such like early days. That it's all really exciting. And we'll see where, where, where things take. We're trying to figure it out, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, particularly because it's early days, you know, some of our values or the prerogatives of the program, one of them particularly is the coordination, which is a part where I'm really, really interested in, particularly when it comes to digital, the way in which digital tech and, and things like that can can help inform and also coordinate service providers. So it could be psychology and psychiatry, it could be psychiatry and, or psychology and GP or, or whatever those clinicians being your chosen clinicians can help you out in. 
Joey, you mentioned before, and I have the wonderful opportunity of working with you in this role to a degree, you're a digital navigator with the Brain and Mind Center. When it comes to that role, what sort of learnings, I guess, have you taken from being on the this youth reference group, but also your previous sort of like youth honcho role with the ACT program site? Yeah, so I've been a, a, um, a digital navigator for, I think, a, a year now. So a lot of that work happened before um, this reference group had gotten off the ground. But in terms of what I've learned from the uh, Right Care First Time Where You Live Systems Modeling Project, specifically at the ACT site, a lot of the things that I learned in those workshops working with other young people has helped me inform my work as a digital navigator. So a big part of my role is helping with the InnerWell platform and giving feedback to make sure it's accessible, but mainly also seeing how different practices and like clinical practices can utilize it to the best of its ability to help young people and help young people advocate for their own care. And a big part of what we were doing at those systems modeling workshops in the ACT was looking at why young people are disengaging with care. What are the barriers to, to receiving care? What can we do to make that care more accessible and more effective for young people? And so hearing all of the stories of uh, their experiences with that healthcare system, their experiences with clinicians, with other staff members and their own mental health, I can take those experiences and look at the solutions that they're suggesting and use that to think of the best ways the InnerWell platform can be used to fill those gaps. I'm not sure if that kind of makes sense, but um, the InnerWell platform is a lot about tracking your mental health and working alongside your clinician. And in the ACT site, one of the big interventions that came out of all mental health modeling was technology integrated enabled care, which is like using technology to help, as well as needing help navigating the mental health care system. So having something like InnerWell, which kind of reflects that technological integrated blah, blah, blah care. Sorry, long, long name. No, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think it helps me feel really passionate about my work, knowing that these kinds of tools are things that young people are looking to want to use. And how can we make sure that tool is actually useful to the young person? How can we make sure the clinician's on board with that tool and understands the value of that tool? So I think that is kind of where a lot of that modeling process has helped me with my role. Seeing a lot more opinions outside of just my own lived experience is really useful. Yeah, that's and I think it's always big of someone and I always respect someone who's able to sort of, just like you said, understand that, you know, your knowledge or your wisdom or your extent is limited to a certain degree. And you, Joey, particularly as well, like you, you mentioned, you're able to humble yourself, which I think is, is super important when it comes to advocacy and, and particularly sort of structural or institutional advocacy to humble yourself in the sense of like, okay, I can't speak to that but I'm going, no one's in the room that can speak to that. So I'm going to raise that as we need to have someone here to speak to that experience. I think that's really important. And I know that that's been something that you've been doing. To pick up on a point that you said, Joey, and I think Elian, you might've said it a bit earlier or mentioned, alluded to it a bit earlier. When it comes to having you know, both clinician uh, or service provider and young people in the room and that sort of beneficial relationship that can be fostered there. What have actually been some of the, 
I guess the learnings from understanding the challenges from both sides had when accessing and navigating care, but also when it comes to the changes needing to be made. And and like you said, Joey, this is a decision support tool that feeds in all these varying perspectives and roles and things like that to have the best outcome for a young person. But Elian, what has been your biggest takeaway, I guess, or biggest couple of takeaways when it comes to having all parties and all, all sort of varying players in the one room? I guess it's you get a really different perspective. As Joey was saying, you you get a nuance that isn't really easy to achieve when you're just advocating in a single environment. Like even amongst youth, I think we have our own I guess not biases, but like we have experiences that we don't, we aren't aware of. We don't know how the clinics and how the actual system runs. We get that sort of end result and we can see sort of how there are faults in that end result, but it's hard to know what clinicians are dealing with and actually knowing what they're trying to do on their end. I think there's sometimes a disconnect where sometimes clinicians think that youth aren't you know, reaching out there that the problem might be with us. But we also assume that sometimes the problems with the clinicians, we don't really see that interplay of sometimes it's elements of the system and sometimes elements of the individual's personal experiences that make it difficult to reach out. And it's not necessarily that either or are the one thing to be solved, but we sort of need to branch out and see everything. Just hearing like, for example, I remember in our workshop, in the ACT workshop for Right Care, was just hearing some of the clinicians talk about the difficulty of things like getting the resources to train people so then they can be trauma-informed and things like that, that there aren't many programs and things actually targeted towards clinicians to actually obtain that information. It sort of is interesting because that's something that youth advocates often ask for is that we need trauma-informed care but if clinicians aren't actually being given that and there aren't actually those resources for them how are we ever going to achieve that and it's sort of interesting to see that some of the issues actually branch further and uh, in ways that are much more complex than I think I myself would have known about without this experience like from what I've learned before going to those workshops and in, in this position, I've really started to understand how, I guess, big some of these issues are, but also how much, you know, people are aware of it. It's not just that, oh, these big issues exist, we're just going to leave it alone. But it's it's sort of like taking little bits of the issue and trying to resolve it and then work together from there, sort of like eating it in little bits so then you're not overwhelming yourself in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's so true. How about you, Joey? What have been your biggest learnings in this? I think exactly what Owen is saying around bringing the two groups together and learning their perspective of things because a lot of the time things that we've been asking for as advocates or just as young people in general for like five years, we're like, why hasn't this happened? I've asked this like five years ago. And when you actually have the people in the room and they explain to you how the processes work, how long it takes to get something like that off the ground and how – behind the scenes it's actually in motion that you're going to see it in like another year or so you start to kind of understand a bit more of the landscape of oh like you're not re-asking me this because you're not doing it and didn't listen the first time but because this time this has has just taken this long to happen because our processes aren't smooth enough and our processes aren't fast enough and you haven't been given the support to do that and then 
vice versa, where there's where there's clinicians who think that they understand what what young people need or want, or they they, they can only see inside their issues like well, well my staff don't have enough support to even do anything like that or my staff don't have this but don't like they need to kind of be pulled back out of that to understand oh wow like there are other things that we can be doing to make this process as easier there, there are little things that we could be changing that these young people are expressing would actually go a lot further than we thought it would because I know it's so hard to kind of get out of that like the, the restraints that are that are put on a system and, and on, on, on our practice there's not much you can do about it in those ways and I think just having both groups learn from each other and both tackle the system from a place of, of, of togetherness rather than a place of opposition has been something that I think is really, really useful. I think it helps build a lot more trust between young people and, and service providers and clinicians and things to see that, oh, we're both being disadvantaged by the same system. Like you're not like you, you as the practice aren't trying to make this like a, like a terrible experience or, or like, obviously no one thinks that they're trying to, like, it's like a, this isn't just you, your, your practice isn't stepping up to the plate. Like there's more behind this. And a lot of the time you have these super passionate clinicians and these super passionate staff who want to do something, but then get beaten down by procedure over and over and over again, and then lose, lose that, that passion or, or get the, 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 the compassion fatigue and, and, and kind of give up within the system. And I think, and then when young people see that, they're like, oh, well, they don't care enough. But it's, it's, it's not about that. And I think I think that's been the biggest thing that, I, that I've learned in that experience. And I'm sure there's heaps of things that clinicians would have then also learnt from hearing what we're saying. Well, I hope <laughs> that, that, that there's bullying. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And I think that that is one of the biggest the biggest things is being able to to kind of step aside from kind of the, 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 the mistrust as well. Like I, 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 I have a lot of personal experiences where, where I didn't really trust the, 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 the procedures of the government or the clinicians and things like that, because I was like, they don't listen, they don't, they don't care. But I think having those people in the room really helps you realize, Oh, they actually, there are really good people who do really care. And we're both being screwed over by the same the same like root causes over and over again the same systems like the, the, the funding issues right, right, and we can actually work together to do better advocacy to make better outcomes for both of us because at the end of the day the services are here to help young people they want to help young people right so <laughs> that's been the biggest takeaway i've had in the in the experience yeah i think joy said something really nice about the fact that it's it's not like it's young people and the system and the services against the system in a sense. I think a lot of the experience that I've had previous to doing any, you know, like big advocacy was it really feels like, and I think a lot of people see it as services against youth or services against the people that they serve rather than systems creating issues that mean that both services and the people that are getting help, you know, get the bad end of the stick. And I think it is really acknowledging that it's not really beneficial for anyone to point fingers at anyone else and be like, you're the reason why this sucks or you're the reason why my mental health is so bad, but more, this is the issue. People are struggling with their mental health. The services aren't enough. What's actually causing this is issues with the system and how it's actually run and, you know, procedural lengths and stuff like that just mean it's really difficult and actually acknowledging, you know, what the actual issue is rather than, I guess, circumventing it and then never actually being able to solve it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think 
from what I'm hearing from you both, that there has been somewhat of a shift in the way in which you're you're able to advocate and and your advocacy forms, I guess, both you know private, public, and and systematic um, or policy like like this program. What changes has this understanding made specifically for for both of you when it comes to, I guess, talking with friends or loved ones who maybe feel a bit disheartened or want to disengage with service access because they've had a terrible time or they've really they feel like they've hit a roadblock in in their mental health care. This is actually a really interesting question because I'm going to probably give a bit of a, a controversial answer in the sense that... Oh, do go. Do go. Spill the tea. It's just now that I have this greater understanding of how things work and I, I, I worry sometimes that you you lose touch with how it felt before you have had that understanding. So I remember sitting and having adults and teachers and, and clinicians say, oh, like, like, like oh they do care, they do want to help, they're just under X, Y, Z or or they're just, you know, you just need to do these, get your sleep on track or do these things and we find rah. And I remember how invalidating it felt to be told that like, oh, yeah, I get that they're trying but clearly it's not enough, right? And so, I, I you know, as I've kind of gone into this space and I understand more about how they are trying or how those procedures work and, and, the, and how it's not necessarily the fault of the clinician or, that, 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 that there's actually like policies behind these things that things have been happening and there is actually a lot of importance to things like your sleep and your diet and your routine and it's not just shit they say to or sorry not just stuff they say <laughs> <laughs> all good all good and when I'm talking to loved ones and family and trying to to approach that conversation with a place of empathy and understanding and wanting to make sure I'm, I'm validating their feelings it's really hard to kind of bring that perspective in without recognizing that that perspective unless you convey it in a very specific way, can just come across as I'm invalidating your experience as a young person who's going through this system. Where I feel like just because and he's, at the end of the story, just because they care and they're trying, it still isn't enough. And we know that at the end of the day, it's still enough. And it's not the young people aren't feeling that. They're not. They're not feeling at the end of the day that they're getting what they need, and they're not feeling like they're cared about. And that that is that is the issue. And so it doesn't matter how many times I say they're trying, they care. It doesn't matter because it's not it's not fixing the problem. So I think I think even though I've got that that perspective and I've got that understanding, the way that I interact with my loved ones, it's changed, but not 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 to the extent that it probably could have. I think that having to reground myself and realize, yeah, like they're bogged up in those processes. But also, if we just now sit and go and lay over and be like, oh, it's not their fault. They've just got all these issues going on with their procedures and their policies, and so let's just accept the crappy care we're getting because we don't want to do that right we don't we don't want we don't want to use that as an excuse we don't want to use that as a oh we don't want to have that empathy be used as a a way to justify young people not getting what they need we want to use that empathy as a building block as like a place of connectivity to work with the people who are making those policies who are who are the service providers who are being affected by the funding and by the issues by the workforce issues etc work with them because we're coming from that place of envy to get better data together, to get better outcomes together, to understand the real issues at hand and advocate to the government, to the people providing the funding, to the different areas that can help and stand strong together to be like, this isn't enough. 
trying isn't enough. You know what I mean? So it's it's, it's controversial in the sense where it's like I, I went on this big spiel about, oh, empathy and understanding each other and, and this is so good, but I didn't have to remind that, like, <laughs> we still need to do something. We can't just be like, oh, yeah, it must be so hard for them and then just accept crap care because that's not really what we want to do. I think that's a really valid point because you don't want your empathy and your understanding of the challenges faced by service providers and sort of the hands tied sort of elements of it. You still want to, you don't want that use to be used as a whole pass for lack of improvement. You don't want empathy to become complacent. Like, yeah. And to be tokenistic when it comes to, or taken for granted when it comes to service improvement and, and better navigation, better coordination, better actual care and treatment for young people who are trying to access a legitimate service. Yeah, and then and, and it goes the other way too. Like you can't make effective change without that empathy. If, if your service providers aren't empathetic of the young people in their situations and they're not bringing them to the table and understanding truly what it feels like to be on there and if they're just dismissing them and saying, you don't know how hard it is, our hands are tied. We get that it's shit for you but our hands are tied. If they don't have the empathy from their perspective for those young people, then you're not going to have the right voices in the room to make the best change. And it goes the other way around as well. If young people are constantly seeing these service providers and or even like certain groups of government and different things as just this big enemy that needs to be tackled, then you butt heads. You're not actually understanding the root issues of certain things and working to fix them together. You're just shutting each other out and and getting separated. And that means that you're not, that you know, you know what I mean? I don't think you can make effective policy about young people without young people and I don't think that young people want to be in the room if they're not treated well but I also think that young people are scared to be in the room because because they don't think that anyone in the room's gonna care or listen so <laughs> so maybe empathy is there so that they, there's that strong understanding and making sure that empathy doesn't turn to just kind of like complacent nothing yeah how about you Elian how has being part of this project in sort of in the, the various forms, as you've mentioned, informed or coloured or strengthened your personal advocacy with friends and family? Yeah, I think Joey actually captured a really big feeling that I've, like, it's it's been hounding me, but I've never been able to express, is that sort of fear that, you know, when you grow to have more knowledge, whether or not that will influence, you know, desensitize you or disconnect you from the experiences that you were before. Because I never want to, I guess I never want to look at other people who are struggling and like say, oh, it's fine because X, Y service is just struggling. Because I think just seeing how much young people and other friends of mine are struggling to get care, it's, as Joey said, it's not enough. It, it shouldn't be a reason to be like, well, they're struggling, so this situation is fine. But I think to sort of add on to it, I think in a way it's actually made it easier for me to note when it's it's something that I can change and something that I can help my friends advocate for when I can see that it's not just a system issue caused by government procedures, but actually something wrong with the service and how they're actually doing things, even just advocating for myself, going to different services and then not listening to what I need, making assumptions about what I need from them is 
having this knowledge of, okay, so this is where systems and services tend to be affected by procedural aspects. And this is where it's just the service, where it's just the service fucking up. Sorry, (laughs) just the service, just making mistakes or just not listening to the young people at hand. And from there, I think I've been able to advocate for myself a lot better, but I've also been able to talk with friends and be like, I completely understand. And I know that's really difficult. Here's how we can advocate. Here's how I can help you. And it doesn't have to be, you know, long talks about how, oh, government procedure X, Y, and Z causes this, but it's just, hey, I know this is really difficult and I'm so sorry that this is happening, but here's a solution that we can try and use. And if that doesn't work, we can try and look somewhere else. And it's sort of, using that as not a justification for why these things are happening, but a way to navigate it and make sure that people that you care about and the young people around you are still getting that support and help, even if the system is not in a great place. And some of that is because of the services, some of that is because of procedures, but it's sort of, I guess, I never want to use it as a justification, but I want to use it as a skills that I can do and use to help other people to make sure that they're getting the support that they need. Because while we're advocating and trying to make these changes, people still need to find a way to survive. And it's never enough just to be like, we're working on these things, but actually implementing that. And I guess my hope is to be able to keep implementing these things so then I can actually help the people around me. Yeah. I think that's also another really important point and I guess a great evolution from what Joey was saying around not using that empathy in a tokenistic or, or, or for granted and using it as an excuse, but using that understanding of what services and, and government systems and policies and things like that, that all sort of inform and disinform sometimes the pathways for young people but actually, in, instead of seeing that as a roadblock, like you said, seeing it as an option or further understanding to know how to navigate this system that that is so convoluted and so siloed in, in many parts, but is full of clinicians and service providers who are wanting to make that change for young people and, and access and, and provide those solutions and those, those appropriate modes of care for young people, but it's about helping those young people also connect with those services. And and that can only come through mutual understanding, but also as Joey was picking up on mutual respect. Mm. If you don't have that mutual respect, I think that's where relationships begin to break down. And I think that's that sort of lack of respect might be where we're trying to work from. Like historically there's been a lack of respect between different sides and it's not just one side is um, disrespectful to another, but it's just not listening fully to the voices in the room and we're hopefully working away from that, but it takes time. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, programs like Right Care First Time Where You Live is about, a you know, it's, it's in the title first time. And so in order for us to provide and inform the right care, wherever an individual is at their life, location, service mobility or access, that that on that first time, we need to address first the relationship and, and either the historical breakdowns, like you said, or where they're currently standing. I wanted to ask 
a final question of both of you, and that is looking forward, looking, you know, down the track of life and I'm not one, I've never been one to plan even a year ahead, <laughs> let alone something that's like five or 10 years or 20 years, 30 years. To me, that's just, I can't even wrap my head around that. Sometimes I can't even plan tomorrow. It's like, well, what happens, happens. <laughs> Thinking and, and sort of, it could be blue sky, it could be rational, it could be whatever. What do you both want to see when it comes to mental health care and wellness for young people in the principles and in the guise of what Right Care First Time Where You Live is trying to change and, and inform when it comes to a young person accessing and, and using a provider, what sort of things do you want to see change and how do you want them, I guess, one of the things that I learned or picked up on or, or sort of enlightened me when it came to consultations and, and advising things was when there was a big idea and you didn't know where to start or whatever, it was what do you want it to feel like and, and how do you want to feel when using it? When it comes down to this, how do you want young people to feel a potential change that you would like to see happen? Obviously, I'd like young people to feel supported and understood and, and, and welcomed in, in any place they're receiving care. Also, listen to about what is and isn't working. But I think the way that you achieve that and the thing that I really want to see is a focus on person-centered care and this is something that like we always talk about all the time uh, at the BMC but also just across the ACT everyone's uh, everyone's wanting to work towards this this is really exciting but just having a system that wraparounds a young person that, that the care is tailored to that young person and their specific needs and not necessarily a generalized blanket care based on the generalized symptoms that they're experiencing I'd like better more accessible assessment for diagnostic things, particularly around ADHD and autism and other forms of neurodiversity, uh, neurodivergence, sorry, so that that when you're doing these things like this personalised care, you're looking at the, at the root of these issues and then the root of the symptoms that these young people are experiencing. I think particularly, this is just my own specific passion because I am <laughs> in myself autistic, my blue sky is every time a young person goes into to, to receive mental health, supports as one kind of like catchment right like you go to gp or you go to this this service or etc and if they don't find out that you're neurodiverse you're going to get sent down a care pathway that's all focused on stuff that isn't necessarily going to help and then the reason i'm using neurodivergence as an example for this and around person-centered care is because neurodivergence or, or certain Things like that are things that clinicians aren't always educated on. And you can't really give person-centered care without up-to-date education, without the, the correct specialists in where you live. So then we're starting to talk about workforce issues. Like, <laughs> you've got this system that you can access at the front and they will know they can they can easily access, ideally Blue Sky free. Um, where this is, this is not real, like, probably going to happen well, I understand that but you know you can go in there you can see someone in a timely matter they understand what you're going through they they if they don't connect with you perfect they have someone else that you can go see and you can actually go through the process of finding someone that connects well with you because at the end of the day just having someone that does the right treatment isn't enough and with the ATT in particular I know that's not an issue that's an easy fix because of the workforce issues we have but 
I think when it comes to feeling secure in a clinical space as well, a big part of, of having like effective therapy is having a clinician that you connect with and you feel like understands you. And it doesn't matter if they're serving the only person who serves the right therapy. If they're not going to connect with you, then you're not going to be able to make the change. Different people communicate in different ways. So having lots of options, having that early catchment, being able to be referred to different options in a way that are warm referrals, that they're helping hold your hand through. You're not just like sent into the abyss or whatever. Having these these early triage pathways, be knowledgeable about things like trauma, neurodiversity, adverse childhood experiences, the whole range of things that when you're being triaged and when you're being treated, you're not you're not getting overlooked. You're not getting diagnosed with the wrong thing. You're not like you know what I mean. And again, big big blue sky things. And then once once that's sorted and you have someone that can deliver the correct care pathway and the correct therapies for you, you're with them. You can connect with them. And then they can tailor those specific things to your specific experiences, the symptoms that you're presenting with, what those symptoms may be caused by and what different things can we do that will work for you, not just what works for the general population. So I think that's my multi-step blue sky. (laughs) (laughs) You say it's blue sky, but it's not really. When you break it down, it is simply providing the rightly appropriate, affordable, accessible care that follows you through your mental wellness. That can be pits that and troughs, that could be highs and successes, but follows you and tracks you and is a walking partnership between the help-seeking individual and the clinical team that they access, which changes from time to time based on the, yeah, the illness. That, that's not necessarily blue sky. That should be what's happening. I think I think the blue sky, the, the main bit to the blue sky part of my argument was the completely free and having all the different specialists that you need in the ACT with one cohesive system that helps you because it, realistically in the ACT, in order to get enough different, like we don't even have particular specialists on, on a lot of issues. We don't have a lot of psychologists that are able to offer specific kinds of therapies. A lot of people have to go to Sydney to do these kinds of things because ACT doesn't have the workforce. So even if we were able to gain just one person for all the different things that we would need to address, it, it wouldn't be enough because you need to have options. And so that, that that's my blue sky is, 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 is understanding that in the ACT in particular, that, that being able to achieve that could take like 20, 30 years minimum to try and build a big enough workforce to kind of have that many specialists to actually stay in Canberra. (laughs) But do you know what? Do you know what? They say while we want, like, you know, myself included, would love solutions right now. I'd love for that to change for me and for the people that I love around me who are struggling with mental health challenges, be them long-term or short-term, I guess the adage is you plant a tree for the next generation, right? So if we're able to plant that tree or plant those individuals in places like the ACT or at, at every capital or local health district for young people and their their families to access for the next generation, then in my mind that's a success in that in that mere planning. Eliane, how about you? Yeah, um, Joey really captured most of like almost all of my ideas, essentially a warm welcome. I think the main thing that I would want for just future generations or just whenever, <laughs> like it would be great if it could be soon, but 
future generations at least would be just not to be treated as a statistic anymore. I've had too many experiences of just being treated as just a number or another list, like another name on the list that they can't put on. And I think it's so dehumanizing and it doesn't really put people, young people in a position to get further help when you're treated as just another number or another name on the list that needs help, but they can't do it. And then they just tell you to come back later. I guess my, it's not really blue skies because I really, at least I really hope it's not blue skies in the sense that I think that what Joey said about warm referrals and just a warm atmosphere, that they actually help you walk through it. They help, they welcome you into their service with a gentleness and an acknowledgement that you are human and that you are going through something, but that doesn't make you worth less. And that actually, you know, you're worth as much as the next person, regardless of what condition you have. But even if they can't help you, that they want to help you further by referring you to places and stuff like that. Because I think a lot of my difficulty was never being referred to the right places, never having that warm referral that actually helps step me through the process. So my hope, I guess, is that with this advocacy work and just with changing times is that services sort of begin to see, you know, the people that are coming to them as humans that just want a place to actually be able to start not just surviving, but thriving and living. My blue skies, I guess, would be similar to Joey's in that it would be really great if a lot of those services could be made as free or at least some sort of payment plan to make it easier for young people who are really struggling with finances to actually, you know, get the help that they need because your mental health and your health in general should never be determined or dictated by how much money you earn like health shouldn't be a scale of one dollar to two hundred dollars you should be able to get health at whatever area you're in it may be more or less help or a certain like uh, further support but it should never be if you don't earn above a certain amount you can't get help and I think that's something that's always really made it difficult for me at least is finances and that un the dehumanizing welcoming to services. So I guess that's my big bubble of what I want the service to be is financial support in ways that don't necessarily mean that it's free because understandably that's not always going to be possible, but at least accessible and payment plans and things that make it easier for people who really need it to access it. And then just a an environment that treats you like a human and that acknowledges that you're not just another name on a list that can't be, you know, can't be worked through. You're just another number that's that's in the system, but actually an individual, a unique person with your unique story who, you know, deserves to continue living that story and stuff like that. So true. And I think, again, likewise with Joey's Blue Sky, I feel like there are, you know, a, Arguably it is blue sky because it depends on, on government, but there are models of, of healthcare out there, uh, a lot of the Nordic countries, for example, or where the government, it, it's free 
And it's free. Obviously, there's been hundreds of years prior of working towards it, but it's often a, an initial cost for a long-term gain. And, and I think one of those things that I am dreading the new year or why I'm dreading the new year, and it's not that far away, unfortunately, is the threshold, rebate threshold Medicare. beginning again at 2400 yeah with medicare and so i'm going you know it gets wiped clean each time and you can't get it lowered or anything like that so you know payment plans uh sort of kiboshed or lower treatment costs or anything like that that uh shouldn't be based on on your socioeconomic status but should be based purely on the fact that we care for Australian citizens it's especially with the way and like and I know that 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 general health care isn't the same as mental health care I understand that but when the first step in seeing a mental health service or specifically like a private psych or anything like that for for the care is to go to your GP and majority of GPs are stopping bulk billing and we're now having to pay $98 for a 10-minute appointment and if you want to do a mental health care plan that's a 40-minute appointment and so just to get in the door to see whether or not you're going to be eligible to get mental health care plans and eligible to go see a referral to a psychologist or anything like that you have to pay that upfront cost that is just ridiculous. And so, so fixing that the, the, the physical healthcare system goes hand in hand with the mental healthcare system because well, the, 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 the inpatient facilities in the ACT or like, like the, the, the emergency wards at the hospital that are focused on mental health are impacted by the funding that are given to like the physical health places as well. Like looking at the connected to the emergency centres that, that are there for, for physical health, they're also the same emergency centres that people rock up in when they're going through mental health crisis. So it is not... Like, well, not, not the exact same, but I'm talking about specifically like emergency department presentations when young people have, yes. Looking at that as well is, is a huge thing. And this is why as, as even though these things are like, oh, this is so blue sky because it's not going to happen for yonks or whatever, it's still stuff that we're wanting to work towards. I think that's the big thing is no matter how kind of unrealistic that kind of stuff seems, uh, being in this like position where I'm still able to be a young person with lived experience, advocating for the bluest sky possible is, is a part of the job because it's like, look, if we can't dream big, then what are we doing here? When, when I'm 40 and, I'm a, <laughs> and, I'm, and I no longer have that ability to kind of put my voice out there, then maybe maybe my sky can be a little bit less blue. But I think, you know what I mean? But like while, while I'm actually experiencing it and living it and while other people are alien and other people are on our reference group and they're on the national reference group for the right care first time and we're living it, why can't we try to advocate for, for a clear blue sky? Because then maybe by the time I am 40 or 50, those motions will be set in space to make it more realistic. You know what I mean? So I, I guess there's also a part where it's like, those ideas are blue sky, but should they really be like, should things like free healthcare be blue sky? And it's sort of, I'm happy to shoot for that as the blue sky, but I really want the next generation of advocates not to have that as their blue sky. It should be things that already exist and they should have a new blue sky to be shooting for. And yeah, because I think there's there's always a sad part where my brain is like, yeah, it's a blue sky, but in actuality, it shouldn't be. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be a blue sky. But as Joey said, we're going to shoot for those because, you know, we might as well go for the biggest and greatest thing that we can 
because it means that we're going to be achieving something, even if it's not that exact thing, we're going to be making steps that are really important. What's the saying? Shoot for the moon and you'll land amongst the stars. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. And obviously you've got to celebrate the small wins and these things are slow and take time and, and getting excited over the little steps that we can make is so important. But keeping that big blue picture as something to strive for, you know, and not acknowledging and having to be realistic with yourself as well. Like don't, I think putting too much, too much like hope into super idealistic dreams ends up making it hard to make change where where you can actually physically make change if that makes sense but so making sure you're, you're, you're aware of the opportunities in front of you that we can take to improve things currently as well as how that fits into our big blue sky picture and what we can do towards the big blue price picture because we don't we don't want to be like we don't want to be going this isn't good enough so we're not going to try or it's never going to this big blue sky that we want so what's the point like we don't, we don't want that like over hope to turn into like despair and resentment from like constantly expecting that we can get the most out of something when we can't so i think i don't know kind of grounding yourself and being like yeah this is we, we want to get there we want to get there but being realistic about how long that might actually take or what what that actually the, the effort that will go into that and having to understand that and be at peace with that so that you don't burn yourself out being sad about dream big but sort of approach it realistically in the sense that you absolutely dream as big as you can but sometimes you do yeah as joey was saying take realistic steps and you know celebrate your wins because i think that's what stops you from burning out as easily is knowing that you have done something even if it's not the biggest bluest sky but it is still you know still something still something right yeah yes Well, thank you both for coming on. This has been a really wonderful chat and and also for a subject that is often quite heavy or disempowering to talk about, it's been really wonderful to hear how through the program of Right Care First Time where you live, you've been able to understand more and color your advocacy more, but also still hold your ground in the changes that you see needing to be made and also young people want to be made. Just like you've been saying that you're not going to lose sight of it and that, you know, small wins are are where it is. So thank you. Well, thank you again for inviting us. 